0: Universalism says there's always a way to make amends and to be a fully participating member of community again. We want to help people be better than they are. I want to be better than I am, and I want my community to help me with that. The problem is we default into the same people's bettering being our top priority again and again. And the thing is, the rest of us were not put into this faith to be teaching examples for everyone else. We were not meant to be the inspiration that allows you to be better than you were. We are here to be members of community like everybody else. Saludos, this is Christina Rivera, and I'm a minister at the Church of the Larger Fellowship, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you, hope it builds your
1: faith, and hope it gives you perspective to experience the power of Unitarian Universalism at work in your life. Enjoy the message. WEPA!
2: Hello! Welcome to this week's episode of The View. I'm Aisha Hauser and my pronouns are she and her. Right after the hosts say hello, I'm very excited to have Reverend Dr. Sophia Betancourt here with us today.
1: Good morning. I am Kiana Dene. for those of you who don't
3: know me. And I'm going to pass it to my friend, Michael. Greetings, everyone. Michael Tino. Good fortune. How are you? I am doing well. I'm excited for today's show. So I'm going to hand it back to Aisha.
2: Yes. So I'm going to introduce our absolutely amazing guests. We are so, so excited. The Reverend Dr. Sophia Betancourt is the UUA presidential candidate. And she's the minister, educator, scholar, vocalist, poet, fiber artist, and change maker, Amen and Ashe. Her work in the world and her practice of Unitarian Universalism are informed by the belief that building mutual accountable relationships with one another allows us to live our values more fully every day. As the child of immigrants from Panama and Chile and grandchild of a seventh generation Unitarian, she knows the strength that comes from building lasting community at the meeting point of difference. Oh, I'm just snapping over here. She has served as a religious educator, a parish minister, a seminary professor, interim co-president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, and countless volunteer roles within the association, giving her truly a wide-ranging experience of our dynamic community. She is an unabashed universalist. The teachings Mm -hmm. of unearned grace and all-embracing love, relational accountability and dignity that surpasses all violent forms of oppression lie at the core of her understanding of life living and service and faithful community. And Reverend Dr. Betancourt currently lives in the Washington DC area. And Sophia, I adore you. So Sophia, you and I, I believe the first time we met was in 2008. If I can say Sophia, you know, people will forget what you say. They will never forget how you made them feel. From the Mm -hmm. second I met you, I felt welcomed, loved and affirmed. So welcome, (laughs) welcome to the view.
0: Thank you. <laughs> so much love. Wow, 2008, that's more recent than I would have thought. I feel like we've been in it for a while together. Anyway, good morning, beloved.
2: So in June of 2023, there will be an election and you are ha- running for UUA president because you served with Reverend Bill Stingford and- leon
0: Spencer, and Affiliate our Affiliate beloved. dr
2: Spencer. Spencer. Uh-huh as interim co-presidents after the teach-in and one of the jokes i used to make is that my plan was to get three black people to be president of the uua so you're welcome what was that like beautifully done
0: oh goodness honestly it was an incredibly faithful complex experience i think leadership of the uua was working really hard in that moment we had an unexpected resignation of a loved leader right really close to an election we had so many issues that were live. And I think there was this kind of time period of what do we do? It wasn't like we had three years left or we might've had a special election. It would have taken longer to set up a special election than to have the election that was already coming, right? With three fierce and phenomenal candidates already underway. I remember Tim Atkins called me to ask me who I thought should be interim or acting UUA president. And I remember I said to him, please don't call me. That was my first response. Yep, and then, I'm gonna be honest, I told him that I really thought it should be a white leader for a couple of reasons. One, no kidding, Dr. Leon Spencer, my mentor, used to tell me, beware when the denomination asks for BIPOC leaders in the middle of a difficult time. Right, he's like, who should actually be holding the work in those moments, and why are they asking you? So I got this phone call, I said, please don't call me, hearing and holding the advice of my beloved mentor. But also, I knew, right, Issues of racial identity, racial justice, the long arc of how we do and do not live our values as you use were really live in that moment. And that question of who should be holding that heat while we try to do really important work that we're here for it wasn't that we weren't having the conversations we needed to have. It's that anxiety was high. You use, we sometimes fear losing each other. And so, what does it mean to hold the space and to hold the faith in that moment? So, I told Tim not to call me. Bless him. And he tried. I hear he defended my desire to not receive a phone call with the Board of Trustees, so thank you, Tim. But I was minding my business, and I woke up early on a Sunday morning. I woke up at probably 5 in the morning in California, which was 8 a.m. Eastern time, and I had an email from Jim Key. May his memory be a blessing. And it just said, I need to talk to you about supporting the presidency of the UUA, Please call me when you can. And I called him at five in the morning in California. And he said to me, I have heard that this is not work you feel is yours to do. But I'm calling to ask if there is, I will never forget this, if there is any part of your calling that includes holding the faith. So that's how do you respond to question? That's a different question. It is. But also in some ways it's the question, right? It's the question. So I'm trying to mind my business. I was like, Jim, I need to pray and talk to my family and think and some other things (laughs) that I might not say on the phone with our moderator of the board of trustees at this time of the morning. But that question, that question is live for me now. What part of your calling is about holding the faith in difficult times? That brought me to a very different answer than who do you think should be an acting president for the next three or four months? Right. And at that time, I think the board was thinking about having Leon and I support Bill in the role of acting president, which also shifted over time. And so that was a very fast. And also, can we just celebrate the leadership of King School for the ministry? I was in my first year on the core faculty, my first year. And I got to call my dean on a Sunday and also our president, the Reverend Rosemary (laughs) Bray and be like, so, hey, I just got this phone call. And to their credit, rather than saying, girl, aren't you in the middle of teaching a class and running committees and doing things, they said, you must do this. They said, you must do this. Imagine.
3: Well, they are also people with deep calls to hold our faith.
0: That's right. Yeah. So you asked me what that was like, but this is the discernment piece of what that was like. Sometimes, how many times do you show up? Because that is the need. This is Hmm. what we do. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Can can I ask the question just so, for me, that's probably right around uh, the doorway that I found back into Unitarian Universalism. I had started in 2000, and then life happened. I did lots of things. And about five years ago, 2000, I started hearing little rumblings about what was happening in the faith, but I wasn't attached anywhere yet. And I was like, wait a minute, if this may not be the UU that I remember. Maybe I need to lean back in, because something's happening, right? Something is big when there's three Folks who clearly are powerful in their spirit and powerful in their leadership are taking the helm of this amazing organization. And I guess I'd really love to hear, Sophia, about how that time transformed you and that time transformed our organization. Because you were holding us at a time where there was a lot of healing that needed to happen. A lot was going on. You didn't step into that role by happenstance or like it was a good Sunday. There was a lot going on like you So I want to know, how did that change you? And how did our faith get to transform in that short amount of time with the dedicated leadership you all were able to apply?
0: That's a beautiful question. Kiana, Danae, thank you. It centered me in my love of this faith and my love of Unitarian Universalists. I've been in the ministry for January is the 20th anniversary of my ordination. It's been a minute. And I've been involved in some complicated conversations and difficult moments. I think doing the work of a living tradition asks us to lean into hard, faithful work. But that moment was about holding who we knew we can be, right? Even when things have gone wrong, even when there are hard questions to ask. And let's think about it. We had a Latinx president sitting our first Right, our 2nd BIPOC bi-POC leader, and we were wrestling with questions of racial discrimination and hiring practices. I don't think that was the only thing that was live in that moment. Right? Every time there's a conflict with leadership, there is more going on, usually than most of us know. I'm sure there are things I will never know about those months. Aisha, I love your framing that this was after the teaching. Yes, right. We were stirring up questions and history and remembering our inherited traditions and what it asks of was like all of this was live. But really what I got to experience was you use unwilling to lose each other, right? Holding fast to tradition. I think it was the Reverend Sean Parker Dennison who said to me, you just loved us so clearly. And yet, yes, I mean it was a palpable thing. So for all that there was this worry and this anxiety, and of course, it is a lot easier (laughs) to be in the hot seat like that with beloveds who you've worked with for a decade. People sometimes ask me, should every leadership role be a collaborative role? Well, forgive me, but no, please, no. It is so much more work to share leadership roles. And so I find the ones that are the most successful usually build on already existing Work relationships where you know what your partner is thinking, what their priorities are, what their gifts are, what their struggles are. We brought 10 years of holding the faith together into those three months. There is nothing else that could have prepared us for that work. But I also wanna say, wow, you use held us with faith. I think about how stressed we were in 2017, how much grief, And this is everyone, I think we like to think about this sometimes as like a bi POC issue. It's not. We've been doing this work for decades. We've actually been doing it for more than a century. And there's grief. How are we still here, right? But my experience was that you, you showed up with gratitude, with love, with enough moments of faith in us to listen to possibility, even if it maybe would have sounded outrageous otherwise. People, joined us in holding the faith. And I don't think those three months would have been possible otherwise. So we don't talk about this a lot, but I want to also lift you youth in general. We showed up, which is part of what gives me faith to say, oh sure, let me try to do this for six years instead of three months. People met us in the work and that was powerful and a gift. I know it's changed me. It it changes my view of Unitarian Universalism. It changes how I show up in work as a theologian, how I show up in human rights work, how I show up as an institutionalist. I've been a human minister for 20 years. I believe in the power of institutions. I believe that we're building a structure that holds our values longer than we can in our living. It's not perfect, but I'm invested in who we've been and I'm invested in who we're called to be. I think people forget that sometimes because I'm also so associated with the work of racial justice as if that is not the natural evolution of the values of our faith.
1: I know other folks probably have questions. I just wanna say the thing that you just said and you said natural evolution, that phrase like made a Tetris noise in my mind. Cause I think that if we're a living faith, we have to have a natural evolution. We have to be one place and acknowledge that we're going somewhere else. Even if we don't know where that somewhere else is I think that we have to be wheels up and ready to go. I think people are used to a faith that's really grounded and rooted and feels unmovable. But I feel like our faith is this lovingly transient. And I don't know how else to phrase that, but I don't mind being transient because when I see the world is changing and I see things moving and pushing and spinning, and I want to be ready for that and lean into that as a part of the process as opposed to being a hindrance to process. So I love this idea of being transient, of being wheels up, of being ready to be transformed. That is something I guess is a central part of my faith that I get to not have to be who I am right this moment forever.
0: What a gift. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, and can we talk about how the idea of transience is a theological inheritance for us? This isn't a new idea. Right. Let's go back to Parker and the transient, the permanent in Christianity, when we were defining what Unitarianism even meant. back This was a scriptural analysis at the time. But this question, what needs to evolve and change? How are we growing in our faith together? But also, what must we not leave behind? Right What defines who we are as a people? I think sometimes we hold our theology lightly as if it was just something we casually decided on over tea one day. People died for the religious beliefs that we hold as religious liberals. We martyred people for the right, for the freedom to use reason and conscience, for the freedom to analyze scripture for ourselves, for the freedom, right, to lean into the kind of pluralism we experience today. So this transience and permanence we've been talking about. For over a hundred years. This is who we are. And what it asks of us in the year of Audrey Lord 2023 might be different than what it asked in the middle of abolition, but it is still who we have been. And we need to claim that with pride instead of accidentally pretending. So I love and I know you are in ministerial formation. Transience, yes. It's at the heart of who we are.
1: I joke that I wear roller skates in this work so I can pivot whenever I need
3: to.
2: <laughs> nice. Listen. That is excellent. Sophia, I I would love to know your thoughts on the complexity of the discourse that's been alive, especially since 2017. But even before that, this notion that what does it mean to be pluralist? I mean, this kind of rhetorically, but what does it mean to be pluralist? Because I had a board president once say to me, well, we don't want to turn off Trump supporters. And I'm like, I'm not interested in turning them on. I'm wanting to center UU values and they're n- we're not going to be able to accommodate everyone. And so as a candidate and UU president, I have my thoughts and answer, but I'd like to know from you, because your love is expansive. It's like energetically something that is so deeply who you are and how you minister. And I feel it. And there's also Lines not to be crossed when it comes to people's humanity. So, I'm curious okay. as a faith leader how you have navigated that.
0: Thank you. I mean, sometimes badly. Just be really honest that we get this wrong, right? And part of our spiritual discipline is to show up anyway and try again. The yeah. idea that we can only be in community if we get it right is, I think, one of the most undermining things. So It comes from all sorts of legacies. But for me, this is also about our theology. I I think we have a twisted understanding of universalism. It's not, wow, we have to find the easiest common denominator so that everyone is fully served, but it's actually not possible. It's not possible. So my caveat for not turning off Trump supporters, it's not that I want to center values that are not UU values. It's that I want to model that there's always a pathway into community. That's what universalism means. You don't have to earn grace. You are inherently good. You are inherently sacred and worthy. And that leaves you with some responsibilities to behave as if those things are true. Mm. That's not on our theology. And it's not on our individual leaders. It's on us as faithful people. Now it is on us as leaders to provide resources, containers, support, learning, strategy, all sorts of things to help us live into what is actually a very challenging spiritual calling. But universalism says there's always a way to make amends and to be a fully participating member of community again. It doesn't mean that the community gets derailed every time one person has a bone to pick with an issue and and this is hard for us as liberals because we do love each other actually love is at the center of our faith we do want to hold people we want to help people be better than they are I want to be better than I am and I want my community to help me with that the problem is we default into the same people's bettering being our top priority again and again And the thing is, the rest of us were not put into this faith to be teaching examples for everyone else. We were not meant to be your spiritual fodder. We were not meant to be the inspiration that allows you to be better than you were. We are here to be members of community like everybody else. So our responsibility as a faith is to say no when there is something that reduces our full humanity and to say here are the ways back into community when we've gotten it wrong because we always will that is universalism and the problem is we don't study our theology and we lose our history and so we think that somehow like this is not a pta meeting not that those are easy but this is not just we have to all get along because we're all stuck in the same container no choice is also in our faith tradition Right, reason is in our faith tradition. Well, so so are some expectations, some covenants, and some behavioral norms. We do not consume each other for a few people to be better. You use.
1: We do not consume each other. I just need to say that again. We are not here for your consumption. Right. And can I just say out loud, I, I'm big. I'm not made to be small. I said this in a recent <laughs> sermon. You might choke on me because I'm just I'm big. I'm i I'm a lot. I don't know how to reduce myself to be small enough to be palatable for the white gaze or the white comfort. So you need to get a big fork or a bunch of y'all need to get a fork. I don't know, really care what you do, but if you need me to be small and consumable, then you're having the wrong conversation with the wrong person. Yep. My faith is too big. My work is too big. I have too much to offer to be small. I just can't do it.
0: Amen. But also not everybody has to be everybody's cup of tea. It's not like congregational life doesn't work if you don't adore every single member of your congregation. We are trying to learn how to build an alternative to the violence of everyday life, right? The church, and I use that language intentionally it's part of religious history. The church this is a Protestant concept, comes from the idea that we are meant to model a different kind of society with values and for some people with God at the center. And it's supposed to be a corrective to what we experience in the world. Does that mean that you are called somehow to have to be able to understand everything about everyone to show up in your values? No, we get to be human, but we have to figure out our relatedness to each other.
1: I wanna make sure other folks who might have questions can jump in, but I wanna talk about the word consensus and how can we start to use that word a lot more? Cause some of what I hear you talking about Sophia is understanding there is going to be some vendor overlap, but there doesn't need to be a collapsing of identity or collapsing of ideas, that there is space in census in knowing you've shared enough and I know enough that I can move forward without anger. So how mm-hmm. do we start to talk more about consensus in the work that we're doing to move forward? Uh-huh.
0: I have some complicated ideas about consensus. I'm trained as an ethicist. So for me, actually, now you can say my top value is the agreement of the members of community, right? And for some communities, that's true. For some families, that's true, right? There are settings where a simple consensus model makes a lot of sense. But I'm really appreciating the legacy of E in our UUA board of trustees of Alandria Williams. May their memory be a blessing. I see in our board the question: Are there any blocks to moving forward? Right? It's not always do we have kind of a full, simple consensus. It is can we knowing all of those we represent and the values we hold dear, can we move forward in this way? Or is there something that is truly problematic within the plans that we have and then we need to spend more time on? But that's not straight consensus, right? There are some nuances in there. And for me as an ethicist, the reason why we express our values, a shout out to the Article II Study Commission, the reason why we express our values in community is that something has to hold us when it's not an easy answer. Or right? you don't need ethics when the outcome is obvious. You need ethics when there are no good answers and you still have to make a decision anyway. And I think that's why we express our value. This might not be what you're hoping to hear about consensus, but I like a complicated consensus. I like a value system that says, we take seriously the places where we tend to default to causing harm and do our work to avoid those. But that doesn't mean that we don't ever move forward because not everyone in the room agrees results in stasis.
3: At some point, we need to get to a point, and this is part of what I'm hearing you say, Kiana, Denae, that if you tell me something is vital to your well-being, even if it doesn't make me 100% comfortable, I have to be okay with us doing that because it's vital to your well-being. And at some point- (laughs) <laughs> we have to have enough trust in each other, enough relationship with each other to do what is vital for your well-being, yes. for everyone's well Yes.
1: And I guess I introduced it into the conversation because some of what I'm experiencing on the ground level is folks having this conversation that until everything I believe is 100% validated and acted on we're not going to move forward. And I guess I wanna move away from this binary, all or nothing conversation into how do we accept that there are some things that may not be met in this context, in this frame, in this conversation, but doesn't mean they're not value. It doesn't mean they're not worthy. It doesn't mean that they won't come up somewhere else and that the work doesn't stop because somebody's uncomfortable or somebody has sea lion the conversation, that we have to start looking at other models of agreement. DC just wrote, there's one or two people who can gum up the whole process. And I want us to get to a place where we're not using that as a weapon, but that we're centering more what I heard Michael talk about, which is, wait a minute, this matters to you. And then it matters to me. And so how can we work through this in a way where our needs can mostly get met and then we'll work the rest out and move forward. So I guess I'm excited about that possibility being in the ether.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Something that I think might be a little controversial, but I think that we have some pastoral care to add to the process, right? I wanna honor how much grief is in some of the ideological struggles in our denomination right now. Mm -hmm. There's profound grief. And so we may not all be of one mind about what the evolution of Unitarian Universalism looks like. But I do think part of our covenant with one another is care. And when a significant part of our population is expressing grief over something as significant to life as feeling like their faith has been taken away from them. I'm not saying I want to derail our justice work at all, but I do think there is room to acknowledge Grief, because it is very hard to get past that place. And if we take seriously that there is always a pathway back into community, I I talk a lot about communal care, this is part of communal care, and it's part of what allows us to show up fully in our values in this way. And those things can happen simultaneously, right? It's not that we wait on the one because of the other, but we shouldn't be bypassing the work around support for that grief either. And I think that this is one of those places where call comes into play, right? So for me, if it's racial justice, I mean, I actually do do a lot of pastoral care here, but maybe that's not my primary job, right? But if it's around gender expression, our trans beloveds, maybe I'm the person who shows up for pastoral care, right? And that's part of how we are co-conspirators to one another in faithful community together doing the work.
2: One of my learnings after the teach-in in 2017 is I underestimated how much pastoral care white people need. And I had to get over my own resentment about that because part of me wants to be angry about that. Then I read James Baldwin. I want to lift up Kimberly Hampton. May she also rest in power. He called James Baldwin, brother James. And James Baldwin wrote in the fire next time in a letter to his nephew, also named James, we won't be free until they are free and we have to love them. And he was talking about white people. And I think the further we get away from the teaching and kind of watching what's happening, especially among white liberals, there is a grief this week's CLF newsletter, for those of you who get it in your email, that's literally what I wrote about along with healing. There needs to be grief there needs to be the grieving of a lot of things right the society we thought existed or white liberals thought existed and d- never existed not since 1619 or really 1492 there's grieving of oppression this u.s society that centers cruelty and i, I mean there are other societies all over the world that center cruelty so the pastoral care sophia that you Name has definitely been something that I finally maybe two or three years ago I moved into it as a faith leader to say, I underestimated how much pastoral care white people need, and that's okay, and that's important because we want to be in community, and there's always a way back and so my way back was not just to be in a place of disappointment and it, and the disappointment came from love of this faith, right, and so. It wasn't because anger's presenting, but it's always something else. It's usually pain and where is the pain coming from and it's disappointment. So the pastoral care is not to be underestimated. And to me, it's kind of like threading the needle. Here's what I want to say. I truly don't have an answer and I would love to know your answer, Sophia. How do we inspire, support, encourage white people to be connected to themselves? in a way where most want to be in community in a way that doesn't start with defensiveness and centering white supremacy? Maybe that's a very big question.
0: Ish, I think that's a powerful question. I really think that's a powerful question. And so for me, it's like, I believe in multiple truths. This comes from Latinx liberation theologies or multiple things are true at the same time. We don't have to fight about which capital T truth takes supremacy. Actually, many things are true at once. So the need for pastoral care is true. The need to decenter whiteness is true. If you put those two things together, then a very obvious outcome is it is not reasonable to expect non-white people to provide the pastoral care that's needed. So where do you get it? That's just a very simple, it's not even judgmental. It's like, okay, these things are true at the same time. But one of the things that I think sometimes happens is we actually don't do the pastoral care work. We feel the urgency of the racial justice work. So I wanna say that pastoral care for people in any dominant identity position, no matter what the issue is, is vital to the work of justice. And it should be done by members of the community itself. Just like if we are leading worship on a really painful triggering subject, we usually have extra chaplains in the room. We make sure that people know about how to find you in office hours. We do all of these things. But there is like this historical punitive drive. Again, and actually in some ways we should change topics because what we're doing right now is centering the needs of white folk and racial justice work. But what if we talk about resourcing just like we would if we were talking about any other deeply painful, life-impacting reality, right? And so, yeah, that is the work of white folks, or it's the work of cis folks, or it's the work of economically privileged folks. There are so many places where we should be doing this work together, accountably, relationally, without asking frontline communities most highly impacted by whatever the injustice is to take care of everyone else rather than focusing on their own liberation. So in a predominantly white faith, we need those structures. We just do. And we do have a lot of them. And there are people who've been doing the work for a really long time. The problem is most of those people look like me.
3: And if I can add something, as Aisha often reminds me, the majority of white culture does not know how to live in community and does not know how to be in touch with our own feelings and our own stuff. Our tendency is to go to individualism. Well, my rights, that's my right. You can't take that away. And we need to relearn how to be in community and say, what is for the health of the community? We need to learn how to decenter ourselves. Because you've been doing all the work centering the needs of the white people.
2: It's so hard. It truly is because again, I'm going to go back to brother James Baldwin. He basically is like white people need to get their shit together. So it's almost impossible to, it's not impossible. I am able to more quickly get to decentering white people when there aren't any white people around. That's just a fact. Even when there aren't white people around. It takes a while spaces like finding your way home or when I'm part of a spiritual direction group that has no white people. In, and I've been in there now like three years. We almost never center white people anymore <laughs> because we come to a place. So it's hard to do. And I don't, I've gotten more nuanced about that too, because I think, especially in this kind of space, what does that look like? Like, okay, we talked about finding our way home, the retreat next week. And how can white folks support us? Not to put too fine a point on it, leave us alone for a week. Truly, don't have an emergency. We're not going to fix the dumpster fire that is the world for a week. Just let us be. But it's uncomfortable. Some white people don't know how to decenter themselves. I don't
0: know. Can I push us a little farther though? Yeah, I want us to decenter whiteness, not white people, mm. because whiteness crops up in our bi-POC spaces. It's not like we haven't been acculturated to dominant culture norms. How often do we call each other back into community when we are behaving with the urgency of white supremacy culture? I don't want to decenter white people. If I was decentering white people, I wouldn't be in a predominantly white denomination. I want to decenter the mythology of whiteness. And I want to keep all the people.
1: I think I'm what you're down saying down, is down. so so tender, Sophia, because we haven't always had the skills, the cultural skills, language, or capacity to separate the people from the whiteness. And because we don't have the language or the conversation tools, we fall back into the, you think I'm racist versus I'm participating in a racist system. That's right. And and so then we get caught in the, I didn't do anything personal, so I can't do anything to dismantle the system. And then, then we get stalled. And so I think some of the pastoral care I hear you talking about is, give, and and you talked about us understanding our theological history. And some of that is folks understanding their own, I think, Kiana Dene's I statement. I think there's a lot to be gained from people understanding their own personal theological history, understanding our greater theological history, and understanding where they live on the spectrum of that. So that as we need to evolve and change, there isn't so much wounding, right? When you're rooted, it's harder, not impossible to get wounded, right? When you have community and language to talk about your experience in its fullness, you don't feel so threatened when anything bumps up against it. That's right. And so I just see so much richness in the conversation we're having, particularly around some of the internal work that we individually need to do (laughs) to heal and some of the communal work we need to do to heal. And it's a huge invitation. It's an invitation to heal. Whether you change or not change doesn't matter, but are you ready to heal? And I'm not ready to answer that question. I don't know if other people are either. There's a lot of power in being wounded. It, it, to be honest, there's a lot of power in being wounded. And I guess I have to decide if I wanna have power in my own woundedness. But that's
0: a beautiful example of what it means to decenter whiteness in black space. Right? Mm. So let's imagine if the three of us, Aisha, Kiana, Denae, and I were in a caucus right now, I would say, Wow, have you read Tony Dade Bambara's book, Salt? It's going to break you. So make sure you have tissues and a vacation. But she's asking exactly that. Are you living in your tears? Are you living in healing? And this is the brutal truth of what that looks like, right? Okay. Okay. I'm going to use just myself as an example because I'm not looking to put anybody's business in the street. If we were in a caucus, I would say, What was the co-presidency like? Wow, we chose three black leaders who were as light-skinned as we've got. In fact, all three of us are the exact same shade. Look at any of those photos of the three of us lighting a chalice. Yeah, okay, we called by POC leaders, but boy, did we choose the ones we are the most comfortable with physically. I did this in a 7 a.m. meeting before we went out to do GA in New Orleans. I put our hands next to each other. We are sure enough all exactly the same color. So if we were in a caucus space, I would say, wow, what does it mean for us as BIPOC community that I have yet to see a dark-skinned leader at the head of our movement? What does it mean for me to be a palatable presidential candidate? Which yep, erases all my experience and all my gifts, but boy makes it easier for me to be elected as the president of the UUA. I'm not supposed to say things like this in mixed company, but this is why we decenter whiteness even in Black space. And if we don't resource each other, we can't do that work well.
1: The colorism you just brought up, woo! That is something in the black and Brown community, we are still wrestling with. 10, it is 10 feet away at best right. on a good yeah. day.
0: It's true. Ooh. Let's be real. If you and I were running for UUA president, we had the exact same experience. Who would get elected? You. Right. you. right. Yeah. And if I don't know that, if I don't do my spiritual work around that, I can't represent you well as your president. Mm. And I have no business being in this role. And if we don't resource the conversation, <laughs> how does it get better? <sighs> I think what you just
1: said is so tender. I think that I don't deal with colorism as much yeah. as I should or could because it is so tender. But I think when you just oh said God. that sentence, it just caught me in my chest. Mm. So yeah. when you said if we were both running, one, I don't have the skills that you have, but two, I knew the answer before you were done with the question. Yep. I knew the answer. And that hurt and it scared me. Mm-hmm. Um and the way that white supremacy shows up in our stuff, even when we're in closed brown and mm-hmm. black spaces, is real. Like being on time and everything, there's those little things and not giving ourselves space to not live into white perfectionism, right? It is so real. And so I just wanted to name and thank you because we're getting to the end here to say, thank you for being honest. Thank you for being real and thank you for pursuing this presidency with the same vigor you would as if 20 people were running. You are running a campaign that is centered on having dialogue and building relationships and is built on understanding the complexity of our history as a denomination and the complexity of our country as a culture that started with taking land and embodying and stealing bodies I'm blessed to know you as a friend. I'm excited. And I just want to thank you. And I thank, you know, CLF for this conversation and this dialogue, because I think sometimes they can get really scripted and really sanitized. And you let me be my full self and you came with your full self. So thank you.
0: Oh, thank you, beloved. Can I make a correction? The book I was talking about is actually The Salt Eaters by Tony K. Bambara.
3: No, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate that we could have had A little lighthearted romp with Sophia for an hour talking about all sorts of things. I'm really thankful that we went super deep, super quickly, and that you stayed super real in my presence. I feel like I've been given a gift as a white religious leader in our movement. Thank you. Yeah. I also want to
2: thank you for. Your generosity of spirit. And it probably is going to be one of my favorite view shows. I've been on a few hundred now because just, I know, we we talked about the heart, right? What is it the heart of spiritual community? What binds us And that helps sustain me. I love Unitarian Universalism and my life would not even a little bit be what it is without Unitarian Universalism. It's been super worth it. And you have been a big part of that. Sophia, uh, all of you on here and Sophia, especially, because you have always been supportive and not just that, but tells the truth. So please know Sophia is one of the people in my life who tells me the truth, whether or not I want to hear it. Thank you.
0: Same. That is four... reciprocal.
2: In the last four minutes, Sophia, is there anything uh. you would like that hasn't been said that you would like to say it, the, the floor is most definitely yours.
0: Wow. Thank you for going deep with me. And I get asked a lot, what new shiny things do I want to bring to Unitarian Universalism? And I want to say that, yes, my campaign is focused on relationship. It's focused on conversation. It's focused on talking about what's really live in Unitarian Universalism right now. For me, what is live in Unitarian Universalism right now is figuring out how we want to go forward together. We are emerging from quarantine of an ongoing pandemic. We are figuring out what our communities are gonna look like over these coming years. We're figuring out what new and innovative expressions of Unitarian Universalism might be. Here's my one shiny idea. My call to the presidency is showing up for the work in a really difficult time. This is a difficult time, right? We're doing the work of widening the circle of concern. We are working on Article Two. We are responding to the rise of fascism in this country. We are trying to meet the needs of communities and we are trying to deal with uncertainty that has been impacting us in a different way for years now. What I want is to be a Unitarian Universalist with the rest of you and to bring the skills that I have to resourcing that faithful work as best as we can. That is my top priority. And it's going to look like a lot of things over this six years. But I'm hoping that folks will show up for that work with me. You did once before. I know you can. I cannot do this work alone. No one can. And I think that the world needs our values and our message right now, which is not about celebrating that we are better than everyone else. No, we cannot avoid the requirements of our faith in these times. How do we hold one another? with love and compassion and care as we show up to the world as it is today. That's the work, and I pray you will join me in it.
3: Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give generously to this ministry. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit clfuu.org podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, to rate it, and to review it so that others can find us. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.